for joining me here on the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela, and I want to thank you so much for joining me here again. For those of you who are continuing listeners and enjoy the content of the show, I'd like to encourage you to head on over to the Podbean page for this podcast and consider signing up as a donor for the show. Your contributions will help out a lot with getting some better sound equipment, so if I'm quiet for a second... You can hear that hum of the laptop. So I have uh, some sound equipment uh, that I need to get, uh, possible um, uh, better laptop or something like that to really help improve um, the content of this show. So please consider supporting the podcast in that way. Now, for those of you who can't afford it um, or who just don't want to support the show, that's fine. Uh, I don't support all the shows that I listen to. Uh, But then I ask you to support it by sharing the content, the episodes with your friends and family or anyone that you think would be interested in these topics that we discuss. Hopefully, uh, I discuss these topics in an unbiased and helpful manner uh, that's open to all different views. And so that should appeal to a wide audience is what I hope. Uh, While you're in such a great sharing mood as well, why don't you head on over and visit our partners at the Christus Victor Network uh, for some other great Christian podcasts. Now, Last episode, you heard part two of a discussion that I had with a fellow Christian apologist, Rob Johnson, from the Apologetics 105 podcast, or at least hopefully you did. I gave you uh, ample opportunity to pause the show and head on over to his podcast to listen to part one. Hopefully some of you got to head on over there and to listen to that episode. Now, in that, in that two-part show, we talked a lot about Molinism and Calvinism, and I got to express some of my concerns that Molinism is actually indistinguishable from a theological system called Arminianism. I've also argued elsewhere that it seems to me that Arminianism, when you take it to its logical end, should actually lead someone to all-out Pelagianism or Universalism. Now, thankfully, many of our Arminians are intent to uh, remain orthodox, and so they often don't really work out those logical um, extensions to that extent, which I'm thankful for, but I think it's a little bit inconsistent. So on this show, what I'm going to do is to start a series on spelling out why I think Calvinism is the most biblical and robust understanding of the scriptural teachings on the topics involved. Now, Before we continue, some of you may automatically already want to throw out a couple of objections uh, to to this uh, right off the bat. So, for example, number one, isn't this show a show on apologetics and philosophy? And don't you deal primarily with atheists and seculars? Why move to this in-house Christian debate? Well, this is for a couple reasons, but mainly it's because I think that a robust understanding of the scriptures and especially of the doctrines having to do with God's nature and his will and the nature of humanity and sin and salvation are entirely central to giving an adequate response to many of the criticisms of the new wave of the kind of online infidel uh, atheistic fundamentalist type of atheism that's on the rise today. 
Now, another objection, though, might be, aren't I already in the middle of a series of atrocities in the Bible? Right? Why am I starting a new one? Well, yes, I am in the middle of that series, but I think that we can actually consider this series on Calvinism a series within that series. What the discussion on Molinism should have drawn out for you is that these views have important ramifications for how we as apologists handle objections to the faith based on suffering and evil and on the prerogatives and actions of God in the Old Testament, for example. So before I go much further into the series of God and how he may or may not have acted ethically or unethically in the Old Testament, I need to get some of these categories in place to explain why I think the Reformed Christian view of God and salvation is actually going to be a much better and stronger position from which to do apologetics. One note should also be kept in mind before we start the show. This is going to be a series on what I think the Bible teaches and is therefore a kind of in-house discussion to a degree. For my atheistic listeners, though, please don't just skip these episodes. Now, I know that I'm not going to be arguing for why the Bible is inspired or inerrant or should be considered authoritative, but I'm just going to be pursuing um, the truth of those. However, you should still listen because when we get to the other areas, like the problem of God's actions in the Old Testament, the objections that are often levied are a kind of internal critique. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll explain a little bit, but pause here, head on back to the very first episode in the in this series uh, dealing with if God is a moral monster called uh, Shall Not the Judge of All the Earth Do What is Just? Now, these objections often argue that if God exists and if God did what the Old Testament said that he did, for example, then that God is evil and cannot be considered all-loving, for example. However, I stated in the first episode of the series that uh, if there are other resources, other concepts and contexts within the Bible that inform those passages, then before you criticize it, you have to first understand what it teaches. So this series, I'm going to be arguing for what I think the Bible teaches. You may not think that it's true or that it's a revelation from a holy God to a sinful creation, but at least you should engage with what a major portion of the Christian world throughout history has believed that the Bible teaches on these subjects, such as uh, freedom and determinism sin and creation, the creator and creation distinction. Now, also, one procedural note should be stated before we we dive in. Because I'm going to be referencing so many passages from all over the Bible, I just didn't have the time or space to get them all in the script, so to speak, before um, starting this episode. So you may hear me kind of clicking away or typing as I pull up some of these passages online. Uh, online is actually a little bit faster than uh, kind of skimming through the Bible as well. So I'll try to edit out some of the longer delays, but forgive me if it feels a little bit more choppy than normal because I'm trying to find passages and then refine my place uh, on, on my show notes and, and so forth. So just forgive uh, that kind of um, technical difference between this ep- these episodes uh, to come and previous episodes uh, that, that you've listened to. Okay, 
So with that, let's dive in and start discussing the, uh, the Reformed theology called Calvinism, or what most of us call the doctrines of grace. Enjoy the show. Calvinism derive their name from John Calvin, hence Calvinism. For many people, they think that we shouldn't ascribe to a theological system because it's following after the man, Calvin, and not the Bible. This is a fundamental misunderstanding of the doctrines of grace, which are also called Calvinism, because it thinks that we're drawing our thoughts from John Calvin himself. Rather, a better way to think of it is that it's called Calvinism because his followers attributed the synthesis of the doctrine to John Calvin. He's the one who formalized it. He draws a lot on Augustine, uh, and Augustine draws a lot from the New Testament. Both of them draw their understanding from the Bible. They're just the ones who systematized it into a coherent system of theology. So when we say we're following Calvinism or we're defending Calvinism, we are defending what we think is the most biblical understanding for these topics and these passages revealed to us. Now, another thing that we should remember about Calvinism is that it's a reformed position. That is, it draws itself uh, and, and, and intentionally puts its feet in the rivers of the Protestant Reformation. It is not Catholic. It is a rejection of a lot of Catholic teaching at the time of the Reformation. Uh, but it stands in a long stream, like we said, with the Bible as the fountainhead. So it is in the trajectory of the teaching of the Bible. So as I'm going to argue, this is the best understanding of the biblical teaching. And it's distilled in five different points, commonly called TULIP. Now, a lot of people think that TULIP was just, that just is a, a catchy phrase developed to remember uh, the doctrines, which it is, but it's actually done in response to what's called the remonstrance. The remonstrance was five points put out by the followers of uh, Arminius, where we get the name Arminianism, and Calvinism came along with its five points to refute uh, what it saw as errors in Arminianism. So that's how we get the five points for TULIP. TULIP is an ac acronym. It stands for T is for total depravity. U is for unconditional election. L is for limited atonement. I is for irresistible grace. And P is for perseverance of the saints. And we will have episodes for each one of these in turn. Now, what you're going to hear me argue for here is not only that this is the most robust biblical understanding of these concepts, but also that they're vital not only for apologetics, but also for the Christian assurance of our salvation. You'll, you'll hear me talk a lot about assurance as we go through, but the point being that because 
all of the doctrines at every point of our redemption find their genesis, find their root, find their being in the grace and the graciousness of God towards his elect people that we can stand sure in our salvation. That is going to be a new concept for a lot of people as we go through uh, this. You're going to see it's not uh, a fear-based thing like a lot of our atheists um, would would like us uh, to come across as being kind of fear mongers and putting the fear of hell into people so that they'll believe. It's nothing like that. Um, So you'll see as we go through. So we're going to start out with the first letter, T. T is for total depravity. Now, one of the most common objections against belief in God and the God of the Bible in specific, is the pervasive nature of sin and suffering in the world. The challenge of evil is often touted as the single greatest attack against theism that exists in philosophical thought today and throughout the ages. After all, how can there be an all-loving God who has the power to stop suffering but doesn't? Yet the Christian response is feeble at best, I think, unless it understands the nature of sin and suffering in the relation to the fall and the fallen nature of humanity. Without the historical context of the fall and the theology of the fallen nature of man, it is impossible to give any honest response to this challenge. This is the first study in our series of the doctrines of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace. You'll hear me kind of change those intermittently between. Uh, And it sets the stage for what is to follow. Now, you're going to hear me talk also a lot about uh, Russian nesting dolls. So tulip um, is traditionally seen as a flower. It's the five petals of tulip. They all go together. But what I'm going to argue for is a better way to conceptualize tulip is to think of them as Russian nesting dolls. They each build on each other as you unwrap Uh, one of them, you get logically uh, necessary into the next one. They flow from one another. They're housed in one another. So you're going to hear me talk about these as rushing nesting dolls as we kind of peel back the layers. Uh, We find the next one underneath the husk. Now, uh, total depravity is a universal condition that Man finds himself in since the fall in the garden, and therefore any talk of salvation has to find its genesis, so to speak, in the garden as well. Well, what have some people said about this doctrine going forward? So, R.C. Sproul, in his book, A Grace Unknown, writes, quote, The total or whole person is corrupted by sin. No vestigial island of righteousness escapes the influence of the fall. Sin reaches into every aspect of our lives, finding no shelter of isolated virtue. End quote. The Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 22, uh, verses 1 through 2, say, quote, Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. End quote. Sin affects our body, our emotions, our ability to reason, our will, and even our very nature. We're born dead in our sins. 
We are sinners because we sin. We are or sorry, we are not sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because we are sinners. Now, what does that all mean? That's a lot of concepts uh, that, that are packed in there. What, what does it mean to say that we are dead in our sins, that we're born dead in our sins, that we're fallen in Adam? What do those concepts mean? Well, we'll see as we go through these verses, but I want to clarify one common misunderstanding. Total depravity is not the same as absolute depravity. Absolute depravity says that we are as bad as we can possibly be. We cannot do anything worse. Every single thing we do is as sinful as it could possibly be. That is absolute depravity, and that is an unbiblical position. That's not a position I'm arguing for. Total depravity just means that the total human being, all that constitutes ourselves, our minds, our wills, our hearts, our emotions, our thoughts, everything about us is tainted by sin, that we are dead in our sin and we are unable to affect our own salvation. So where do we get this from? Right? Where are these passages? Uh, where in the Bible are there passages? Well, first we have Genesis 6-5 in the context of the flood. Uh, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Right? So here he's talking about specifically the generation during the time of Noah that they were continually evil, that every intention, that every thought uh, of their heart was evil continually, right? But isn't that just that generation of Noah? Isn't it, isn't it only that generation? Does that apply to all humanity? Well, let's find out. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was bought, brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is uh, a passage talking about uh, how we are uh, conceived in sin. We are born in, in, in iniquity. Uh, we are born dead. Right? Again, I, I'm not going to take time to argue if each one of these passages are true or not uh, to, to my atheistic listeners. Uh, but this is, this is what the Bible is teaching. By the way, I should clarify also um, that when we talk about being born in sin, it doesn't mean that someone has necessarily sinned themselves. So we're not saying that an infant uh, has sinned, right? It's that they're born with a sinful nature. They're born with a proclivity to sin. They're born fallen in Adam. They are born, and we're going to see this as we go later, they are born into a covenant that is already violated, Right? So if we think about uh, a covenant between God and humanity made in Adam, Adam was the representative head. When Adam fell, all of his posterity, whom he represents within the covenant, fell. When Barack Obama, as president, if he were to declare war, then all America would be at war because he is our representative to the nations. That's just how it goes, whether or not we are actually the soldiers or not. We are uh, in, in lieu of being or, or because we are represented. What about another passage? Uh, Romans 5, Romans 5, 9 through 23. I'm just going to pull out a couple highlights. Uh, so verses 10 through 12 tell us that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seek God. 
all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Later on in verse 18, he says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And then in verse 23, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, what is is Paul saying here in Romans? Paul is saying that that Genesis 6-5, that every intention of the thoughts of the heart is continually uh, evil, is a condition of all humanity. Right? All of humanity has turned aside from God. No one seeks after righteousness in our natural state. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are born covenant breakers, but we ratify that to ourselves by our own personal sin. We show that Adam is a good representative of us because when Adam fell, so would we. If we were in his position, so would we. Uh, Romans 7, 18 says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He's here talking about uh, how his will is bound in sin before Jesus Christ. That apart from Christ, his flesh cannot do what is pleasing to God. Again, this isn't total depravity. It's not saying that Paul can't go help the little old lady across the street, but he can't do anything good that's meritorious for salvation. He can't make himself right with God. Romans 8, 5 through 8 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That cannot is going to be important, by the way, in our discussion with Molinism. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We're going to see why that cannot is so important. He's saying that those of us who uh, who are still in the flesh, who are not redeemed by the Spirit, who are not regenerated by God, who are still in the flesh, uh, do not submit to God's law, and so we cannot please God. We are autonomous. We try to say we can do it our way. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Right? We were all once unregenerate. We were all once unsaved. It took an act of God to bring us around. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That, that's a, a big statement from Paul, right? Before, uh, before God, who was rich in, our, in, in his mercy, uh, we were dead in our sins. We were dead, and it was Christ, it was God, who made us alive. Uh, that, is a, that is a passive verb. We, we were passive. God is the one who made us. He fashioned us. The clay doesn't ask the potter to be made as such. It's passive in the action. All right, so what are so that's some of the passages. What are some of the components 
uh, of this doctrine. First, there is sin in Adam as our representative head. Uh, this is our legal guilt. Adam was our covenant head before God. And because Adam sinned, all of humanity was cast out of the garden. Adam and his progenity were now required to make offerings to God, right? We had to give sacrifices. Our sin now brought about death, right? We can see that Abel's offering was acceptable because he offered a sacrifice of atonement with the blood that was shed, while Cain offered a fellowship offering without previously making the required atonement to do so. The first genealogy after Adam uh, focused on there. There's this refrain that flows through that says, "And he died, and so and so lived, and he died, and so and so, you know, lived this many years, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died." This is the only genealogy that focuses on the year of the death, rather than on the number of the years that were lived. And he died, and he died, and he died. The emphasis is on the fact that sin brings about death to all of Adam's offspring, all of those who trace their genealogy back to Adam's. Romans 5, 12 through 21 tells us again, notice that the sinful condition and the punishment of death that follows from Adam are attributed to all of humanity. Paul repeats this fact five times in just nine verses that all of humanity is sinful because of Adam. Uh, We sin in the flesh uh, as our total depravity. Uh, We have what's called natural pollution. God has us dead to rights. So even if we weren't covenant lawbreakers in Adam, the corruption that came from his sin upon human nature would still make us born sinners and we would still commit sin throughout our entire lives. So because every part of us is corrupted in sin, then the Bible is completely accurate when it states that we are dead in our trespasses, which we saw above. Now notice uh, these are the former states of the believers. They They were by nature vessels of God's wrath. But now we are by nature sons of the Most High God. These are talking about our natures, not just our wills. Remember in Romans 5, 7 through 8, that Paul tells us that the mindset on the flesh is not able to follow the law of God, nor to please God. Notice that they're not able to. They cannot. Right? These, these cannots don't refer to a lack of permission, right? but rather they are terms that mean a lack of ability. Right? A teen may tell a friend, I cannot go out tonight. And what they mean is they don't have permission. Right? Or they can tell a friend, I cannot ace my SATs. Right? Speaking of their natural inability to do so. These passages are of the latter kind. They speak of ability. We cannot because of our nature, not because we aren't allowed to. Jesus says in John 6, 44, quote, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And again in verse 65 of chapter 6, quote, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. End quote. These are universal negatives. They exclude everyone. 
right? They, they, they say that no one can come. That means no one, not anybody, right? Uh, no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. No one, not anybody can come. And there's that word, uh, the, the, the Father draws him out, right? Uh, the, the verse is commonly used to show that God woos people, right? So they're going to say it, it's, it draws people, um, kind of like uh, um, uh, a, a spouse might, might woo their, their future spouse uh, to come to them. And that, that he doesn't actually mean that he forces people, but rather he sweetly courts them to himself. But really, the, the word elk, which is, which is Greek, uh, el, elko, um, is, is better translated as he compels them. Um, he, he drags them. It's the same word used in Acts 16, 19 in regards to Paul and Silas being dragged into the marketplace in front of the authorities. Right, they 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 weren't they weren't wooed to come uh, to stand before uh, the authorities. They were dragged there. They were they were compelled. They were forced to go. It's also used in James two six of the rich who oppress and drag the poor into court. Uh, it talks about how the rich elko uh, the poor into court. They don't woo them. They don't sweetly ask uh, the poor to come into court. They're dragging them into the court. Um, neither of these, neither of these contexts would work with woo as the translation. Neither of them are, are sweetly courting them. It's also used in other Greek texts to refer to drawing water from a well, right? You, you, you elko water out from the well, but even there, water's completely passive to the will of the drawer. You drop in the bucket and you pull the water out. You drag it out. It's not, you're not, you're not coaxing the water out. You're not asking it, oh, please water, please come out of the well. No, you're dragging it out. You're pulling it out. You're taking it by your initiative out. Now we can also wonder why the crowd would have been so offended to the point that most of Jesus's disciples at this point Right? When he talks about how uh, no one can come unless the Father has drawn him, why at that point do many of his own disciples leave him if he was merely stating that God woos us to him in a non-intrusive, non-sovereign manner? Why at that point are they so offended and leave him? Right? That's a little bit of the biblical discussion. What about a little of the historical color? Um, the major debate about this um, theology, before really its modern resurgence um, in, in the Reformation and following, was the Pelagian controversy between Pelagius and Augustine in the 4th and 5th centuries. Now, Pelagianism has been condemned at more church councils than Arianism has uh, right that it's been it's been condemned more times than the denial of the deity of Christ. Right. Uh, if this if this heresy has been has been condemned more times than one that says Jesus isn't God, right? That the church the church took it pretty seriously. It was condemned uh, first at the Synod of Carthage in 418, and was again condemned and upheld at the Council of Trent in the 16th century with its uh, Decretum de Peccato Originale. Right? So even the Catholics, who are uh, many of us Protestants think are semi-Pelagian, are going to go so far and, and to uh, deny Pelagianism as a heresy. Now, Pelagius 
uh, stated that Adam was merely a bad influence on his progeny, and thus by working really, really, really hard, humanity could actually achieve perfection in this life. Because sin is really just a sickness, right? And, and it's not, it's not, you're not spiritually dead. You're just sick. You can get better. You can work really, really hard and you can heal yourself. Now, Augustine recognized that Pelagius was merely preaching a version of works righteousness and affirmed the traditional understanding that Adam plunged humanity into a legal death in the covenantal sense before God but also had corrupted the very nature of humanity itself. His focus was on the will. Right? Augustine claimed that the human will was still free, but it was not liberated. Our will still functioned freely, but it couldn't act freely in every sense. Right? It, it could only act freely in accordance to the nature that it was attached to. Therefore, a human dead in sin is spiritually unable to be righteous before God because the will is in bondage to the corrupted flesh that is hostile to God. So when God regenerates us, the will is then in bondage to a regenerated nature and therefore it can freely choose Christ from its own nature. Right? This is one of the aspects of what scripture teaches uh, when it speaks about the bondage of sin, uh, but now that we're slaves of righteousness, right? So we're in bondage to sin in death uh, under our old nature, but in our new nature, we're now slaves to sin. John Calvin reaffirms this when he says, therefore, good men above all others, Augustine, have labored on this point to show that we are corrupted not by acquired wickedness, but that we bring innate depravity from our mother's womb, end quote. This is John Calvin's The Institute Number 2, uh, chapter 1, verse 5. Now, Augustine had two formulations to talk about this. He talked about man before the fall and man after the fall. Before the fall, Adam had the ability to sin. He was passe Picare in Latin. He was uh, posse, possible, picare, sin. So he was posse picare. He was able for him to sin, but he also had the ability to not sin. He was posse non picare. It was possible for him to not sin. He did not possess, though, the inability to sin. He, he was the, the non posse picare. It, it, it was not that he was unable to sin nor did he have the inability to not sin. He, he was not non-passe, non-picare. We then get to man after the fall. For man after the fall were unable to live without sinning. Augustine's double negative of non-passe, non-picare means that we cannot not sin. That is, we're only able to sin. We, we can't do uh, anything righteous to merit our salvation. All right, so what are some of the arguments uh, against this? Um, there are a couple uh, of arguments uh, from within um, uh, kind of biblical orthodoxy. I'm, I'm not here going to address kind of atheistic, uh, secular objections against, um, against this for the most part, largely because, again, we're just trying to find out what the Bible itself actually says. All right, so uh, two two major objections are launched. The first one is that uh, people are basically good, 
<clears throat> right? You hear this in modern churches today saying, well, well, God knows my heart. God looks on the inside. Uh, he sees my heart. He judges my good intentions. Uh, isn't, that, isn't that sweet? Uh, sweet and false. Uh, that God knows my heart is not good news. That is bad news. If you don't know that God seeing what's really on the inside of your heart is bad news, uh, then I then I think you don't really understand yourself all that well. You don't understand your unrighteousness and you don't understand God's holiness. Uh, if you don't understand how you've fallen short uh, and how you've sinned and what that means uh, in the presence of a holy and just God, then you kind of need to go back to the biblical drawing board. The reformers never said that people could not conform outwardly to the will of the, and the law of God. In fact, they called this civil virtue or civic virtue. Yet they said that, quote, a deed that outwardly conforms to God's law, but proceeds from a heart alienated from God is not deemed by God a good deed, end quote. That's uh, from R.C. Sproul and Grace Unknown, page 120. Uh, Jonathan Edward called act of civil virtue enlightened self-interest. <clears throat> so, uh, biblically speaking, uh, people are not basically good. The second one is that it's unfair that God would impute the guilt of one man to an entire race. Right? So they're going to say just because Adam was guilty, it's unfair, therefore, that all of humanity is guilty. Well, within the system of covenants, this should be seen as a, basically a moot point. Within a covenant, the one representative for the whole set is what's required. For example, the one scapegoat to remove all the sins of Israel. Right? Do we not impute the innocence of the one to the many and vice versa? We must remember this is only one side of the coin as well. If we reject that the sin of the one head can be imputed to the many, then we must also reject or object to the that the righteousness and obedience of the one man, Jesus, being imputed for the salvation of many. So again, biblically speaking, the type of objection doesn't really hold water. Now, I'm going to read uh, a couple of, of quotes kind of toward uh, heading off the end of this section. Um, this was the section again on total depravity. And we're going to see as we go through how these nesting dolls uh, unpack uh, as we go down. Really, total depravity is, is kind of setting the stage. Uh, it, it sets the stage that here we are with, as a fallen creature, we're sinful uh, in our heart. We do, we do actions uh, that are sinful with our wills, our minds, our hearts, our desires, everything about us. And yet we seek redemption with God. How are we to be made right with a holy and just God when we cannot affect our own salvation? That's going to be the question going forward. But here are some final thoughts. First, Tertullian said, quote, every soul then by reason of its birth has its nature in Adam until it is born again in Christ. Moreover, it is unclean all the time that it remains without this regeneration. And because it is unclean, it is actively sinful, end quote. Uh, Commodianus in, uh, in about 240 CE, Adam said, quote, Adam was the first man who fell. And he conferred on us also what he did, whether of good or of evil. For he was the chief of all who were born from him. 
As a result, we die through his means. For he, receding from the divine, became an outcast from the word. End quote. That's a really uh, interesting way of basically saying, look, when Adam violated the covenant, he was separated. He was thrown out from the garden. And from then on, anyone else of his clan, of his people, anyone who descends from him, starts outside of the garden. Because he's an outcast, we are born as outcasts. John Murray writes in, in a, an essay uh, called Some Necessary Emphasis in Preaching, he says, quote, The gospel is the gospel of salvation, and salvation is, first of all, salvation from sin in its guilt, defilement, and power. End quote. Uh, finally, there is the Canons of Dort. The Canons of Dort are a uh, broadly um, uh, European ecumenical council um, uh, with, with Arminians and Calvinisms, both, uh, Calvinists both there, but the Calvinists won the day in the formulations. This is the third, third and fourth main points of doctrine. Uh, Article 1, the effect of the fall on human nature. Quote, man was originally created in the image of God and was furnished in his mind with a true and salutary knowledge of his creator and things spiritual, in his will and heart with righteousness and in all his emotions with purity. Indeed, the whole man was holy. However, rebelling against God at the devil's instigation and by his own free will, he deprived himself of these outstanding gifts. Rather, in their place, he brought upon himself blindness, terrible darkness, futility, and distortion of judgment in his mind, perversity, defiance, and hardness in his heart and will, and finally, impurity in all his emotions. Article 2, The Spread of Corruption Man brought forth children of the same nature as himself after the fall. That is to say, being corrupt, he brought forth corrupt children. The corruption spread by God's just judgment and Adam to all his descendants, except for Christ alone. Not by way of imitation, as in former times the Pelagians would have it, but by way of the propagation of his perverted nature. Article 3, total inability. Therefore, all people are conceived in sin and are born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin. Without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God to reform their distorted nature or even to dispose themselves to such reform. And such is total depravity. The biblical notion that we are fallen in our sin, that we are dead in our sin, that we can do nothing to affect our own salvation. Not just that we don't merit it, but also that in our fallen nature, we cannot even choose it. We cannot even exercise faith as a means to salvation. That is total depravity in the Bible. Thank you again for listening to this episode. Next time, we will pick up with you in Tulip for Unconditional Election. Stay tuned for that one. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, feel free to shoot us an email at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Or you can find us on the Facebook page. Uh, just look for Freed Thinker Podcast uh, in the group 
pages you can find us there enjoy some of the dialogues as always you can find us on itunes i'd love the reviews if you uh, enjoy this content and again please uh, prayerfully and thoughtfully consider uh, becoming a contributor or a donor to this show thank you again for listening and we will see you next time around thank you again and god bless